Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. Welcome back to another lesson and continuing on with chapter three. Lesson four. Sorry. God wants to be your friend. Uh, last week we made it all the way up to page top of page forty-seven when we went through a lot of uh, some of the details of the Old Testament sanctuary system, the offerings. Talked about that a lot. Uh, went through most holy place. For those of you who weren't able to be here, um, went really well. But we're going to finish. We're going to finish the lesson today, and we're kicking off where it talks about the feasts of the Old Testament sanctuary. Um, a key thing to keep in mind was that the Old Testament sanctuary system was a symbol or a type teaching a larger reality. None of it was supposed to be taken literal. And that's a key point that I, that I like to bring up, and I think that we should all kind of keep in our minds too, because when we're talking to our other Christian friends of other faiths, it's a very common view that it was it's to be taken literally. And so um, you end up having conversations with people that like, yeah, God actually wouldn't forgive their sins unless they killed a sacrifice that was required in order for them to forgive. And that, that hinges off this lie about God that, you know, it's this legal penal exchange that we talk about a lot here in this group. But there's a lot of biblical evidence that does not support that idea. Um, it actually supports that it's just a, te a teaching. So before we get into it, for those of you who had a chance to, like, maybe listen to or read the chapter up to this point, is there anything that you would like to kind of share or, or kind of kick us off before we get before we get started? One thing I do want to say is that it's amazing to me how God is so symbolic. He uses symbols, he uses, you know, a ritual or something like that to mean something else. And it really does inspire the mind to really think deeply about what you're doing because it's, it's I don't know, it's just very interesting, you know, all throughout the Bible. Yeah. God uses symbols, uses, you know, situations, things that, you know, teach a lesson. And it's wild because God himself, when he speaks, I mean, the only time he really spoke when, other than when Jesus walked the earth was the Ten Commandments. Right. So he doesn't say a whole lot. Right. And, you know, and it's it's very wild as a Christian walking this walk, you know, and you really have to read into things to get the meaning of stuff. And, and this is a neat study on that. And it's true. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think God speaks in symbols a lot? Or uses that whole, like, metaphor or object lessons? Well, I mean, it's like games, right? Right. You, you, you play a video game and you want to finish the game because it's basically like finishing a puzzle. Or, you know, you you have to put your mind to certain tasks to kind of think of the solution to a riddle or what have you. Rather than just telling you and be done in two seconds. Hmm. This the searching is part of the growing experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why. Well said. I agree with that. Yeah, it's the searching. God is teaching you a concept like Jesus spoke in parables a lot, right? And so, yeah, you could take the parable for face value, or you could like, comp like really contemplate, like, okay, so what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And 
yeah, in that searching to find the meaning is where your brain changes and growth happens. Right, it's like an onion, you know, it's just different layers to the meaning. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. So starting here at page 47, we're going to kick it off in, in uh, talking about the ceremonies, the object lessons that the feasts and ceremonies point to. In a, the book says, the lesson says, in addition to the daily rituals, chapter 23 in the book of Leviticus lists seven annual ceremonies that were called feasts. The Hebrew word is mod. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm just saying it how it reads. And it means appointed time. These ceremonies were to take place in the order and at the specific time given. Each one pointed to a specific event in God's plan of salvation. Joe, you want to read down the list, one through seven? Sure. Uh, number one, the Feast of Passover pointed to Christ's death. Number two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the next day pointed to Christ's burial. Number three, the Feast of Firstfruits, the third day pointed to Christ's resurrection. Number four, the Feast of Weeks pointed to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 50 days later. Number five, the Feast of Trumpets pointed to the warning of a time of judgment soon to come. Mm. Number six, the Day of Atonement pointed to the time of judgment. Number seven, the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to the time when judgment is over and all God's people are gathered in their heavenly home. So, I really wish, and I did not take the time to go through and do this, but I wish the author of this study gave a little bit more references to like that. So, like, for instance, number four, the Feast of Weeks pointed to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost 50 days later. Where did you get that information from? I really should be, he added that there. I think that would have been really, it's like a footnote, right? Like mm -hmm. a footnote. That would have been helpful. I wondered if, though, if like one weekend a year they just feasted all weekend because they've got the, the Feast of the Passover and then they've got the Unleavened Bread that pointed to the burial and then the Resurrection. So, you know, was there like a whole weekend of, of feasting? Like just a different menu for each day? You know what I mean? Or were they separate feasts throughout the year? I don't know. Is there any information about that? Okay, I mean, did they, they seriously feast for three days? Like a whole, I don't know. Well, in Leviticus, if you read through, it talks about it. You know, he references that chapter 23 in Leviticus lists. And in them, in that, you know, is probably the breakdown of what you're talking about. You know, a lot of those details. Okay. Looking at it, though, the bottom of page 47, in that last paragraph, I highlighted, he says, um, the tabernacle of the Willis or in Solomon's temple were only the shadow of good things to come or a symbolic representation of reality. Back to Mark's point to kick us off. It's an object lesson. It's pointing to a grander thing. And last week, you know, we spent a lot of time last week discussing sort of the process of the sacrificial system and how it taught the plan of salvation from killing the animal, the blood represents the life, the altar, the priest's work in the holy place, the curtain, the veil, moving into the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, which is an object lesson for oneness with God because that's where God's Shekinah glory dwelt there. And so it was teaching to a million plus Israelite slaves who love virtually lost all knowledge of God, how God works, God's character and the 
plan of salvation. So these feasts are also the same thing. Um, if these feasts are pointing to a specific event in God's plan or a specific time frame, then where do you think we are? Yeah, where we are in, in what relation? Seven steps here? Yeah, in terms of like, if the Feast of Passover pointed Christ's death, that came and went. The unleavened bread was the next day after Christ's death, his burial. That came and went. Resurrection came and went. Are we... Are we uh, at the time we're in right now? What feast do you think it represents? I guess maybe that's my question. The Feast of Weeks, or the Trumpets, or the Day of Atonement, or are we the Feast of Tabernacles? I would say Day of Atonement. Okay. Any other thoughts on that? I would go. I would go with number six. Because I think we're in a time of judgment. I think there's a, there is a um, movement. I don't know to figure out who God really is. What is His character? You know, all that's coming into question now. Um, that's a, like the time of judgment of His of His character and our thoughts about that. I don't know. Have Have we always been? Has Has it always been a feast of trumpets then? Since the first day? I think the Feast of Trumpets occurred up until 1844. And then the judgment started in 1844. That's when Christ went into the most holy place in heaven to look at the, the life or of the dead prior to that moment. And so I think that's... I, that's my understanding of it. So um, to tie that in real quick, and then we'll keep going through the lesson here. But in 1844, prior to 1844, there was basically the Roman Catholic Church, period. There was, a, there was the going through the Dark Ages, there, this is commonly known history. The Bible was in Latin. It was in a, a language that the common person couldn't read. It was only read by a priest, spoken in Latin. Like, everyone was in darkness to the truth about the scriptures. In 1844, that's when you, you know, leading up to that, prior, prior to 1844, you had guys like, I think his name was Tyndale, maybe Wycliffe. Or there was a couple guys who ended up translating the Bible into the common tongue for people to start reading for themselves. And that's when you ended up with, like, Luther... Martin Luther started, there was like this big movement of people were finally starting to read the Bible for themselves, and they were coming with these conclusions. They were judging for themselves that, okay, there's something more going on here than what the Roman Catholic, at the time, the Roman Church, was portraying or keeping under control. In 1844, enough, as I understand it, enough knowledge about the Bible and God was recovered that a lot of people started moving out of that system and you start like the Methodist Church was born, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born. There's a whole bunch of Pentecostal denominations that were or Protestant denominations that were born out of that movement. Okay? And the whole point of it was giving people the freedom to read the scriptures for themselves and make a judgment based on what is true. The Day of Atonement. We talked last week about atonement came from the root word at one, at one meant, which means 
to bring two parties who are at odds back together. So if you're going to bring two parties who are at odds back together, then there needs to be some judgment taking place to make a decision to come back together, right? So that's how I look at that whole, we're, we are absolutely in the Day of Atonement right now because the third angel's message points out, worship him who made the heavens and the earth and see and all that is in them. Now is the time of judgment. We are to look and make a determination. Is God the type of person who is worthy of our worship? Or is God the type of person who is like Baal or Satan or this penal legal thing? So, And once everyone is able to make a determination and make a judgment for themselves and are then solidified, then we move into the next feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, pointing to the time when judgment is over and all God's people are gathered in their heavenly home. That points to the time when Jesus comes. It's really a profound thing. And I mean, man, we're just we're just glad bouncing across the top of it. There's there's so much you could go deep with all of that. It's insane. So flipping the page over, check out Hebrews 4, 14 through 15. Can someone read that text for us? <clears throat> for the law having a shadow of the good things to come. The next one down. Hebrews 4, 14. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Seeing that seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What do you think of that? He knows us. He knows our struggles. He knows our challenges. I love the part on the, the next paragraph or whatever. Been there, done that. You know, it makes it personal, right? Because sometimes we think, you know, sure, easy for him or not. You know, right? Doesn't, you know, right? Doesn't know the challenges I face. Mm. But he does. I finished listening to a book this week called Be Your Future Self Now. Amazing book on prospective psychology. Pretty cool. But a lot of times, and this is what was really profound for me, a lot of times I find myself living life going, all this stuff was done to me. Right? A lot of victim. Yeah. We think about that a lot. All this was done to me. But he threw out this terminology and he said, what if you were able to change your view and think all of this stuff was done for me. How would that affect your future self? How would that affect you if you viewed these things as this was done for me? And you go like, man, gymnastics in your head to try to figure that out. Like how the different abuses that we've all suffered or bad situations that we've fallen into, like how do we say this was done for me? Like what? But if you look at this verse, this is how I'm tying this in. God came and let all of these things that were done for him so that he can now sympathize with our weakness. So that, you know, we, we read in a previous lesson where it talked about God was afflicted, you know, with our afflictions. He felt what we feel. 
kind of this concept. And I got thinking about it, if Jesus' per mission on earth was to make God known, John 17, Jesus in that prayer in John 17 then says, may they also make God known, right? So if you kind of follow that process out, you think, well, if this was done for me, then I can sympathize with someone else in this situation and make God known to them because I feel you. Like I get that. Like it's a whole different shift in your head, which is its hard for sure, but that's pretty wild. We've all had them conversations where we're talking to someone who, okay, let's just say, you know, they don't even know what uh, you know, like a substance abuse situation is. They've never dealt with it, but yet they're trying to like help you or whatever. What the heck do you know? You've never even been there, right? Like it's not mm -hmm. even... <laughs> but, but then you talk to someone who's like, yeah, I've been in recovery for a long time. I know you. I, I got you. Like that's a whole different conversation there. You know? Let me talk to you about child rearing and doesn't have any children. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Prime, yes. Prime example. You know. Yes. Yeah, just tell them to do this. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you haven't had a child. Yep. So that idea of like Jesus came to reveal the Father to us, we all, the Bible talks about that concept, we all are, are oppressed under the weight of sin. It's the darkness that clouds our, our opinions about God. And so as we go through this process of like reframing our mind and judging for ourselves that God is a lot more like Jesus, then we have come out of that system of the lies that we believe about God. Now we're able to talk to another person who is still stuck there and say, man, I, I've been there. I know exactly what that's like, you know? And you can, you can come out of it. But we digress a little bit from, I think, this lesson here. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. It goes on to say, the earthly sanctuary and its services serve as a visual aid until the time of reformation. It was the old covenant. Or a better way to state it would be that it was the old arrangement, which is true to the Greek word used in Hebrew. What do you think about that idea that it was an old thing? An old covenant, time of reformation, the old arrangement. A lot of people confuse all of that to say like, oh, but all of that was just done away at the cross. They lump all of this together, right? Ten commandments, a bunch of different things. When Jesus died, it was all done away with. I think what isn't... Who was it last week that said they're they're working on building the temple again in Israel mm -hmm. right now? I wonder if they're going to start offering sacrifices again. Hmm. No? Yeah, there's also the verses that talk about, you know, there was the earthly sanctuary, there's the heavenly sanctuary. You know, there are the verses also that talk about that your body is God's temple. You know, that he lives, that not with 
with Jesus' death that God now lives in us through his spirit. So we're also his temple. I think it was you, Mark, last week brought up this really interesting point that do we actually think that Jesus is literally in a building in heaven spreading blood all over the place? I think you brought that point up. Because there's there's a lot of people who believe that there's a physical sanctuary in heaven just like this Old Testament system and, and Jesus is the high priest working in there just like this. Like it's a, a type of it or a pattern or a, a thing and like That's sad. But I just ask the question like what to what end, to what purpose, what does that make God look like to be? Like how Right? If the Old Testament sanctuary was designed to teach in a symbol and an object lesson for the reality of salvation until Jesus came and he was the lamb that was slain, why is that happening in heaven? Like, if that's true, you know? It's kind of like a thing of a person who passes away. Oh, they're in God's hands now. They're in God's arms. They're, you know... It's sometimes it brings comfort to a person to to say something like that. You know, Jesus up there, he's he's teaching up there in the, the great church of the sky. You know, well, there's nothing biblical to that. I know there isn't, but it's a the comfort level that people it have. Is. That people have. Yeah. It is. Everyone wants their loved ones to like be involved with their life even after they pass on. You know what I mean? It's that part of grief, but. Again, that's something that's not biblical. I, I, I don't think we understand at all. I mean, we barely understand God. And for us to understand what God's doing is the next level of understanding. And I, I don't think we'll have any of these answers until we actually have a chance to ask. I just, you know, you know what I mean? It, it's just... The, the, the amount of information that's given, I think it's hard to definitively say, what is Jesus doing right now? Is he sitting underneath the tree of life, or is he in some tabernacle praying to God all day? Well, let's jump down to page 49, third paragraph from the bottom. And this will basically, this, this conversation moving through these points are really important and relevant, and also bring us to the end of the lesson. But uh, third paragraph from page 49. The earthly temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans and has never been rebuilt. According to Scripture, Christ did not enter into the earthly sanctuary as high priest, but into the heavenly sanctuary. And now that we know that Christ is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, we need to know what he is doing there. To answer that question, we begin with the book of Romans. Uh, Angel, you want to read Romans 5.10? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Okay. So the author brings up the bottom paragraph. There are two points to be made here. One, we are reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. 
This means that we were once separated from God, but learning of the love of God through the death of Christ, we have been won back into a relationship with him. Pause there. Well, I thought most of Christianity teaches that God required the death of Jesus in order that we be saved. So he's bringing out a different perspective to that. Jesus died for her sins. If Jesus didn't die, very few people would go to heaven. So we're not at all discrediting the importance of Jesus' death, right? At all. But I, I want to just say the author makes a, a reason. He makes an interesting point there of the reason of Jesus' death. Right there. But learning of the love of God through the death of Christ. We have been won back into a relationship with him. God was willing to die for you. To, the truth about God back. revealed in Jesus. Yeah. yeah. And then the second point from Romans 5.10 is after being reconciled or won back to God, we have the tendency to stray away again and need God's continual help to keep us close to him. This is where Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary comes in. What do you think of that? So what's Jesus doing up there? Continually showing us, reminding us of that love to draw us, draw us, draw us. So if he's in a physical building with physical records, how in the heck is he doing all of that? How is that even possible? Let's look at the third paragraph here on page 50. Just as the daily ministry of the priest in the earthly sanctuary, as our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, Christ always lives, that is, he continually ministers or makes intercession for us. Check this out. The author here gives an entirely different view of the idea of intercession mm -hmm. or interceding. And I think it's polar opposite of what most of Christianity teaches. Intercession is from a Greek word which means to communicate or to stay in touch with another. Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is continually pleading for the Father to accept us on his behalf. Did I read that right? No. I didn't read that right at all, did I? But that's the general concept in the world. That's the commonly held view. If you said that to most Christians, they would say, yeah, that's about right. That's what we were taught. Yep. But the author here said, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is continually pleading to you and I to come to him and stay with him, reminding us of his sacrifice, because what did we learn about God in his sacrifice? That love. God is love. And that won our hearts to him, and we open our hearts to trust in him. Like, that's a completely different view of God right there. Mm -hmm. Our resulting salvation from the word Christ ever lives to do in our hearts is what it means to be saved by his life. I think that's really interesting. Sarah, thoughts? I just kind of see it like there's a parallel between, you know, this idea and then what happened with the children of Israel through the desert with the cloud, right? Like he, he led them through with that that daily reminder, right? It was always there. And yet they still worshipped idols and forgot. And then when Moses went up on the mountain, they thought, he, you know what I mean? Like, even with that daily reminder that, like, God was with them and then he, you know, provided all these different things. So, like, I kind of see it like he's using this same concept here through the idea of intercession, right? Like, 
the cloud was his way of interceding, right, for the children of Israel. A daily reminder. Kind of the same idea, I guess. So there's, by the way, great connection. That's a fantastic connection. There's there is substantial biblical evidence that actually when somebody says God's in the heavenly sanctuary, you should ask the question, how does the Bible describe what the heavenly sanctuary is? And if you did if you did a study on it, you would come away with the heavenly sanctuary is made up of people, living people. Not brick and mortar and wood and curtain and gold and it is made up of living people. Right? So does God dwell in this Yeti full of coffee? Not at all, right? But does God dwell in my heart or in my mind? Absolutely. This is our temple. Okay? So if you think about this concept from the idea that, that the temple, the heavenly sanctuary, is here, then Jesus is, through the Holy Spirit, daily interceding on our behalf, working with us to come back to a knowledge of God, and cleansing, right? If we needed to cleanse our sanctuary, last week we talked about the veil, for those of you who are here. What did the veil represent? The lies we believe, the distorted beliefs that we believe that keep us from being in connection with God. Because in the Old Testament sanctuary, there was a veil that separated the priests from the most holy place. And we talked about the whole symbology between the, 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 the angels being sewn on it and how the priests would sprinkle the blood, which is symbolic of the life of Jesus. So this whole metaphor is that Jesus, with the angels, are sprinkling the life of or the truth about God into the lies we believe that keep us from being close to God. Joe, you look. I'm listening. I'm just... Okay. Comment. No, I'm just. I'm just. Uh, thinking, I'm just thinking about the when they when they made this holy sanctuary on Earth. Who determined how the most holy of the places should be built and how it looked? Who determined that? God. God did. God gave all of that to Moses. Okay. Yeah. In detail. I mean, outlined it completely. It's an amazing read. A lot of detail. It's a boring read, <laughs> but it is a very detailed read. And the deeper you go no, into understanding the, each little tiny pieces of it, the, the deeper you go into understanding the, the, the individual symbology, Mark, like you said in the beginning, the more beautiful of a metaphor it is. Like, it is just absolutely amazing. But to back to our discussion here about the whole concept is... Once a person has their sanctuary cleansed, in other words, all the lies that they believe about God have been cleansed from their system, and they they are they're like Job. Though God slay me, yet I'll still trust Him. They don't believe any more lies about God. Then, is Jesus' work in your life is 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 the need to intercede with you? No, you're done. It's all finished. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And what happens at that point? You now turn with Jesus and start working with Jesus to intercede in someone else's life. I just thought about something with what you just said about the ark. The sanctuary was a place of safety. They, you know, Mark, you just said about how God gave detailed instructions about the temple. Their, the temple that travels with them, how to build it. 
We also had given specific, very specific directions as to how to build the ark. You know, very specific. Not the Ark of the Covenant, but Noah's Ark? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. Okay, I'm tracking. Because the Noah's Ark was a place of sanctuary, a place of safety mm -hmm. for those people. You know, um, otherwise we'd have been completely wiped out. And, you know, so my brain, when you said about that, I thought, well, then the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary is a place of safety mm -hmm. for us too. The earthly sanctuary was a place of safety where they could come and learn about God. The heavenly sanctuary is a place of safety for us where we can continue to learn about God, be drawn to God, and grow, um, you know, our relationship with Him. You know, so rather than the sanctuary, like, you know, our my brain is always pictured sanctuary as like a, a church mm -hmm. or a, a temple, you know what I mean? But if it's a place of people, of beings, it's a place of safety to just draw us and to teach us to continue to grow and understand who God is. Mm. I like that. Right. You know, back to what you were saying, not to, that's awesome analogy. Maybe I got that. But, you know, I was kind of joking when I said, no, we're all done. And But I see what you're saying, I think, where you were headed, that, you know, right, just like, been there, done that. So now, right, we can say, hey, if you think of him love in a different way, but at the same time, when I said we're done, you know, like up here, that we have a tendency to stay to stray away and need God's continual help to keep. So that's why, you know, once saved, always saved. Like, so I was kind of joking, but at the same time, I see, you know, so I was being facetious, but I see what you're saying. Been there, done that. I don't. So done, but not done. Right. I don't 100% agree with the author when he said we, we all have a tendency to stray, because do we think that when we get to heaven, we're going to have a tendency to stray? After Christ comes? No. no. And Jesus down. said, and Jesus talks about it that, you know, in Revelation, he describes a people who are sealed. Mm -hmm. These are they who are sealed. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're done. They're sealed. They don't have a tendency to stray anymore. Period. Like, the Bible describes this process. Like, in Romans, Paul said, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Second Corinthians 3.18, by beholding a mirror, we become, you know, we become like Christ. We're changed into his image. In other words, his character. So like, so yes, Frank, I mean, 100%. Jesus does his work interceding for us. And eventually we get to a point as we trust him and open our hearts to trust him that we are sealed. We are like Christ. We are sealed. And it doesn't matter what Satan does to us. It doesn't matter what the world throws at us. It doesn't matter if we die, if we lose our life. Like Stephen Joe, we talked about this a lot when we did Book of Acts. We talked about Stephen a lot, how Stephen was sitting there preaching. They were stoning him. He looked up. He said, man, I see the, the throne of God right there. Like he and, and Paul observed that incident when Stephen was stoned, and that's what changed Paul's mind. That's what started Paul's ministry. And like, Well, it started after the road to the Damascus. There you go. Yeah. But that seed was planted thank you then. thank you for that clarification yeah and so was jesus there constantly reminding stephen man don't get mad you got to be mm -hmm. got to be gentle like his heart had been changed he, he was, was already, already he was done he was now working in harmony with christ as christ joe i i remember you bringing this up when they were when they were doing to jesus crucifying jesus you made the parallel to say stephen 
was acting the same way Jesus was acting. I remember you saying that. That was a really cool insight. And and because Stephen was done, he was now partners with God, revealing God to the rest of the world. Do you have a comment, Angel? Yeah. Okay. I'm just thinking. Just thinking. It's, a, it's an awesome thing, isn't it? Yeah. Check out here toward the bottom. This actually kind of points it out. Third paragraph from page 50 at the bottom. Understanding this, we now know that whenever we may need help, it is not necessary for us to go to a rabbi or a priest or a preacher for intercession with God, but that we can go boldly to the throne of God for ourselves. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you have a lie about God that you can't go to God directly, because if we, we talk about that so much, man, that's a common theme in a lot of our discussions. I mean, it's it's a it's a passion that I have. God, don't look at me, look at Jesus, because if you look at me, you'll see all the sin in my heart. Well, I'll tell you, in my walk with God, I realize certain things I do that I don't think is good for me mm -hmm. doesn't separate myself from God like other things that I know is a sin. Mm -hmm. And it's like you knowingly do a sin, you feel the separation from God. And I think Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, works so hard on our hearts. And as you walk, you realize that you don't want to do this sin, only, not because of the, the sin, that, you know, the bad aspects of the sin, but because you don't want to hurt God's feelings. You don't want to show up wrong. And it's, it's wild as I age and I, you know, concepts mature in the brain. It's wild that, you know, you know how God works. And, um, I mean, the sanctuary is supposed to teach us how God works and, you know, all the different aspects of it. Like that, the way it's broken down here as far as how the feasts work. And then it's broken down a little bit earlier on how, what the different parts of the, the sanctuary basically point to the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really, you know, last week I was very unenamored by the study, but after thinking about it for a week and really getting into it it's really a beautiful thing yeah it's awesome buddy thanks for that yeah um it's a great segue mark into kind of wrapping this conversation up about sin because next week we're going to start lesson five so next week next week i think is our church picnic corporate gathering so the next time we meet around this circle we're going to be talking about calling sin by its right name and I encourage everyone to do their homework, to read up on it, because that's a great conversation to have with people. Understand what sin is, how it works, how to heal from it, what we need, and, 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 and how we view sin impacts our view of how we view God. That's really good. Yeah, let's have closing prayer.
God, thank you for this conversation. Man, your sanctuary and all the parts to it and how it all just teaches this, this bigger picture of how you heal us and restore us and then how we're supposed to, you know, how when we participate in this healing process that we then help others. It just keeps going out and out and out like waves in a lake. And so... Thank you for these object lessons and for these metaphors and these symbolisms, God. And may we just dwell on these things this week. And, you know, the image that comes to my mind, Lord, is in the sanctuary system, there are vessels that were used to carry the blood from the altar. The priest would put the blood in a vessel and carry the blood into the most holy place. And then from that vessel, he would put some on the veil. He would put some here. He put some there. God, and the vessel is a symbol of people. And the blood is a symbol of your life. And God, may we be vessels that carry your life. And as we go about our day-to-day -day activities, may we sprinkle your life on others and plant all of those seeds so that one day, God, when we reach heaven and we're able to be able to kind of observe our life from a bigger view, we can see the totality of the impact of the seeds that were planted. Help us to accurately reveal you this week in your name.